I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation under God. Real niggas getting money from the fucking stars. All right, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Wayward Weekly, episode six. I am Bobby Burns. And I'm Paul Sexton. And uh, all right, Paul, what do we have planned for today? I know um, we sort of changed the format of how we are going to do this. So every episode, uh, we're going to take the first 15 minutes to a half hour um, to recap the last episode, <clears throat> go over um, anything that we might have missed, some things that we might have misspoken on, or sometimes we just get carried away in a rant and we listen back and go, that's not really what I was thinking, or that's not really how I feel about this subject matter. I was just on one. Um, so we are going to... Um, go over last week's episode. And then uh, on this episode, we are going to get into uh, the discussion of Trump uh, and his, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? It wasn't an order. It was a negotiation or a deal with uh, both Russia and Saudi Arabia um, to have Saudi Arabia and and Russia, um, but mostly it was about Saudi Arabia, to reduce their oil production. So we'll get into that at about... Uh, the 15-minute or 30-minute mark, somewhere around there. Um, so to go back, last episode, we talked about the diversity of ideas and can we have too much diversity uh, when we are talking about different ideas and different ways of processing information. Um, in the episode, we talked um a little bit about vaccinations and uh, anti-vaccination movements. And... Um, I want to start off by saying um, I, I mentioned the Andrew Wakefield article uh, from 1998 in the episode, uh, and I kept saying it was a redacted article, redacted meaning um, edited or revised or, or something like that. Um, what I meant to say is it is a retracted article, meaning that um, the article has been revoked, removed. Um, it, is, it is seen as void or no good. Uh, and so I at least wanted to start off the episode by, by saying that that because I had misspoke about that. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, um, I don't know, uh, if you had anything to say about that or any questions about that, Paul. Well, just to, to add that, um, he was, uh, if I'm recalling him correctly, he was basically kind of the leader or the initial leader of the anti-vax movement, kind of the go-to doctor for, um, the, kind of set the foundation for all the anti-vax uh, positions that are being put out there today, right? Yeah, so he was uh, a entogastrologist or something like that. You might know what that is better than I do. Um, entogastinologist. And um, he, yeah, he did the article uh, on MMR vaccines and their causal relation um, uh, with autism. And so um, it was where he had uh, people go back three and a half years on average and think, you know, what was it that, uh, you know, the first symptoms of autism appeared? What had happened in the days before? And they're like, oh, it was the MMR vaccine, just like the study uh, that that you are going over right now. Um, and so uh, that that was uh, what he did. And, um, you know, he did uh, he's got these. Um, He's still a proponent of it today. So he's got these um, 
videos that you can see on YouTube where he has conferences about vaccines and autism. Um, and he's had his license revoked as well. Um, I'm not sure what kind of license he had. Like I said, he was a gastroenterologist. Um, gastroenterologist. So, yeah. So he's an MD. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And well, no longer. Um, as exactly. Far as yeah. Lost and, his license. And that's what I recall uh, seeing as well. Yeah, so um, he still has these conferences where um, he he goes and he speaks and people come. And uh, I remember watching one two or three years ago. Um, so don't quote me on this exactly because it was two or three years old and um, or it's it's been two or three years since I've seen it. And so I could be misquoting it. But in my head, um, he had said something about uh the article he was standing up and still talking about it 23 years later or 20 years at the time and uh you know just giving this really passionate speech to his audience and he's like i never said in that article that vaccines caused autism and that we found that i said it is a link that we should investigate yet they didn't want us to to know that or be looking into that and so they took away my medical license Okay, so he he says that, and then about two or three minutes later in the speech, um, maybe even closer in time, maybe it was twenty seconds later, um, he he goes, "We know vaccines cause autism." So it's funny, just because on the one hand he stands up and he he says, "Look, we didn't have enough evidence, and that's not what I was saying. I was saying like we should investigate." And then uh, just a moment later, he goes, "We know, and we have enough evidence, and we're certain." Um, and so it's. It's it's just funny the hypocrisy of you know um, the uh, trying to to play to the one side. Um, uh, well, playing to the one side while also trying to maintain a, his status as being a mainstream physician. So he's saying, yeah. I, "There's no crazy here. There's no crazy here. This is all science." <laughs> and then he makes an absolute conclusion to play to his base. I mean, right. you know, a lot of people do that, and it makes you wonder. Um, is his his life benefited overall from his position that he's taken or has he suffered as a result? Because, I mean, if he has suffered as, as a result, then I do give him um, a lot of credit, maybe not as a scientist necessarily, but I mean, it's really difficult to put in that amount of time and attention into something, you know, in order to become a doctor and then to take a hardline position on something and to literally watch your integrity uh, or not necessarily uh, the way that other people view him as an integrity, uh, as a person having integrity is completely diminished and goes away because he takes on this position. So if he's kind of like dying on his own sword, you know, I do kind of feel for him in that regard, even though I may disagree with him overall, because obviously if it is more of a detriment to him, then, uh, you know, he's kind of out there doing this sort of thing alone when he could be making potentially a lot more money as a practicing doctor. Yeah, um, uh, I think one of the the challenges behind that, though, is um, that he's got so many people following him and holding him up on a pedestal. I think yeah. that feeling alone um, yeah. in that amount of, uh, I don't want to say pressure, but admiration and ad adoration and people thinking, you know, like you, you are the hero of this story and people doing that makes him go, yeah, I don't need the money. This is great. And he's probably still making quite a bit of money. I can't imagine yeah. he's not making money off of these. Well, people, and it'd be a know? tough trade off too, because he's a hero in his community right now. 
right? I mean, because he's anti-vax, but if he gives that up and says, hey, you know what, like I was wrong, and then he deviates from that position and goes back to the mainstream position, then he's just another guy that doesn't have a medical license. (laughs) So you're right. You're right. Like he has to maintain, like even if you stop believing, I mean, but that's the problem with typecasting yourself in any endeavor. That's why I think it's always important to kind of preface stuff by saying like, Hey, I might be, I might be wrong, but we tend to take hardline positions. And you and I were discussing that a little bit uh, beforehand in terms of like us being hypocritical um, or possibly being hypocrites because uh, um, we're not as cautious about approaching vaccinations as other people might be. Yeah. Um, And I mean, what I want to say is though that, um, it's the, the speaking with certainty, you kind of brought it up. I believe earlier you were saying that like, you know, um, some of the people who are against vaccines are speaking so conclusively about the the research and the evidence as if there's no wiggle room or no room for error. They are certain that this is what's going on. Um, where I and, and you probably don't speak as certain. I believe both of us in the last episode left room to say, look, there's a chance that, that vaccines in general um, might on occasion uh, cause or result in injury to some individuals. Um, and so we're not saying we're absolutely so I, there are people out there for sure who say uh, in and especially within my field, I've heard it, I've seen it. Um, and uh, it uh, it's hard because <clears throat> We are a field of science, and now I have people in my field, so I'm a behavior analyst, um, and I have people then in my field speaking with confidence outside of their field of expertise, right? So I have somebody um, uh, who will say... And I try to neutralize the topic a lot of times. I'll say something like, look, you know, we don't know for certain, but here's like what data looks like and here's how how science works. And though I'm not an expert in this field, um, we're not seeing conclusively that this is what's happening. So for right now, you know, we can kind of uh, assume that it doesn't happen a lot if it's happening. And someone will come in and say, nope, we have proven that vaccines do not cause autism. And it's like, and I'm a I'm a behavior analyst, and I know. And it's like you studied Skinner, you studied you know s- uh, pigeons in a box, and in dog training, and um, you know with Pavlov, which is all the things I'm stu- I've I've studied. I'm not downplaying that at all. I think um, I'm I'm really fortunate to have fell into what I did and studied what I studied, but that has nothing to do with chemistry and biology. And so why are you speaking outside of your scope of practice? Um, and so to some degree, then I get why this, uh, what happened was, let me explain this a little bit better. Um, or let me give you an example. Somebody, uh, on Facebook had commented about vaccines and I, um, tried to step in and say, well, Hey, um, you, you want to be cautious with the way you say these things. And they were anti-vaccination. And I said, there are, you know, are a lot of vulnerable parents out there looking for information. And this makes it sound like there's conclusive causality here. Um, in reality, nobody really knows. So it's probably best that everybody just lets the parents kind of 
come to their own decision instead of really playing on their vulnerabilities and trying to scare them on one side or the other, um, you know, and then me <laughs> playing the role of the middleman, poor me, I'm just kidding, um, kind of got it from both sides, uh, you know, and um, so somebody else who does what I, I do hopped in and said, uh, and I didn't mention my profession at all because my profession has nothing to do with vaccinations. And I would almost say it has nothing to do with autism except for we work with people with autism. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't make us experts on the causes of autism, right? Um, if if that were the case, I could walk into a, uh, a cancer treatment center and ask the receptionist who works there... Um, hey, what's the cure for uh, cancer and what are the causes of cancer? And the receptionist should know all that stuff because the receptionist works with people with cancer. That's not how it works, right? So just because a behavior analyst works with children with autism doesn't mean they know anything about causality. Now, it does mean they have had to study science and statistics. And I would probably say that I've had to study science and statistics more than other behaviorists. I think I took four or five stats classes and TA'd two or three stats classes. Um, so I've taken it quite a bit. <clears throat> and I'm just trying to say, hey, behavior analyst, not your your subject of uh, expertise. Leave it to somebody else. Like, be neutral. Well, I'm trying to have a discussion about science here. And you're saying, no, we are absolutely certain. We have disproven this theory and vaccines could never cause autism. And it's like, that's just not how science works in general, right? I think um, there's a quote from Albert Einstein. And I mean, there's uh, a few famous philosophers who talked about um, the philosophy of science, Paul Feyerabend and Karl uh, Popper. Um, and and they say, look, science doesn't prove anything in absolute uh, absolutes because that would assume that you know every future occurrence of what is going to happen. It, science just says the way things have been up until now and those types of things could change. Um, and I think even I've with certain, go ahead with certain controls and variables, right? Like you basically, you're saying you, you create an environment with controls and variables, you run the scientific study, but it doesn't explain the existence of all the other variables that are acting outside of that study. So there's still more to learn. You're just replicating an environment over and over again to see if you get the, uh, hypothesized result, correct? Uh, Yes. And, and there's an extension of that saying, we don't know all future cases of what is going to hap happen. And it could be Paul, that when I say what goes up must comes down, uh, come down when I talk about gravity, it, that's how it's always been. But I could throw a ball in my hand up and it could not come down and we go, well, crap, it didn't happen that time. We expect it to because it's happened a billion times before. Um, but yeah. who's to say that the next time that it won't? We should believe that it will and we have good evidence, but we can't say for certain. That's what some of these philosophers of science are saying. That's what... Um, um, Again, maybe I'm misquoting here, but I believe it's from Albert Einstein, and I'm pretty sure. Uh, in fact, I know I've heard Neil deGrasse and Tyson say something to this effect, because I remember listening to him on Joe Rogan once, and he goes, look, science is wrong. Science is always wrong. In fact, all the science that has ever existed has been wrong, except for the science that we have now and all the stuff from within the last 30 years. So what do I expect to happen in 100 years? That all of this science will be proven wrong. 99.9% .9 of all science has been proven wrong. But but we just try to make it better than some of the previous science. And um, some of it doesn't change much. It just changes a little bit. There's a good book well, called Half-Life of Facts that goes over that type of stuff. But does it change the, the science, though? 
I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to try and see, I mean, or, or sorry, rather to say that the science in the past was necessarily wrong. It was just a, a foundational, um, you know, like foundational research so that future scientists can pivot from that research and create something that is what we perceive as being new. But the foundation, this, the studies that preceded that invention uh, were necessary as a foundation to basically create the the novel product that we're looking at today, whatever that might be. That could be true. I mean, science is supposed to tell us something true about the world, and there are sciences that have been wrong. And look, the the good thing is most science that we uh, have when we talk about astrophysics and stuff just needs adjustment, like you're saying, or things just get built off of it. But there are adjustments. Yeah, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. But there are certain aspects of science that are wrong all the time. Um, oh, yeah. And, for sure. and they have to completely pivot. Now, you're saying, well, didn't we need that to build off of it? And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that that it was right. I mean, look, science said that the cause of autism in, in the 50s and 60s, science said, or a scientist said, and everybody believed it from the field of science, that the cause of autism is bad parenting, and specifically mothers and their failure to um, develop emotional attachments with the child. That's the cause of autism. And that was science. Yeah. And that was held as a scientific um, um, evidence, you know, until somebody came yeah. along and, and said, look, there's a genetic component here. It has nothing to do with that. Um, so at any rate, look, yeah. um, and that stuff is necessary. You need that. Well, that's why I think fringe ideas and fringe movements in, in the aggregate overall are actually a good thing because you need to, to, you need people to devote a lot of time to figuring out like, okay, this avenue of thinking is wrong. It didn't result in what I wanted. Unfortunately, I spent, you know, 15 years on this idea, but it just didn't pan out. And that yeah. way future scientists can say, you know what, we're not going to waste our time there because there isn't any there, there, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the book I finished up last week, Homo Deus, um, I, I liked it because at the ending he kind of said, look, this isn't to t uh, supposed to tell you how tomorrow is going to be. Um, this book could be completely wrong. And I hope that it is. Um, the, the, the future could have any number of possible paths, but if I've laid out a few of these types of things, then maybe that helps give us a little bit more control and make better choices. And so I think that's somewhat analogous to what you're saying is if we get these fringe ideas and people try different things, even if they're completely wrong, historically, we can then le learn from them and learn what paths not to travel down. Um, and I think that's an interesting point of view. I mean, uh, I hang out with a lot of different um, types of people in my life um, and have a, uh, been in a lot of situations in my past that have been somewhat questionable where I look back and like, dude, I would not want my kids um, if I had a kid hanging out with those types of people where they're doing those specific things, um, yeah. like uh, being around people who are smoking Oxycontins and stuff. I never did that. And I went and I sat there and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. Uh, and, and, but you, you worry about people um, turning out like the people they're hanging out with, but I've always hung out with so many different types of people. I've never kind of fallen into one group. And for me, I go, I, I, I learn from all these different people. I see what they're doing and I go, mm, I like some of the things that they're doing, but I don't like this. And I like, because I can hang out with such a diverse group of people or, or diverse groups at different times, um, I feel like I can learn things from them and learn 
also what not to do. I mean, look, so much of what we learn is not from success, but from failures, right? Um, yeah. It's not just, in fact, if I succeed, I probably don't learn much at all. I probably only learn from when I fail. If I write a paper um, or I uh, do a math test and I get everything right on it, I'm not going to get any feedback from my professor. But if I get it wrong, I get the feedback they then read it, I then learn and I adjust my behavior and I change. And so a lot of what we learn from is our failures and getting that feedback about our failures. Um, I do want to hop back because we started uh, digressing um, and we were talking about uh, science and um, autism, ASD, things like that. And, and really what I wanted to say and what we started out talking about is that, you know, the the certainty of the comments that we make related to this stuff um you and i are just less certain when we make comments um we say things like look i'm not saying this couldn't happen i'm leaving room for it where you're saying no this always happens and this is absolutely true but i i will say there are people on the flip side and you and i just happen to fall in the middle that are that are saying no, it's absolutely certain vaccines do not cause autism ever. You're an idiot. And it, it's like we hold there are we, a lot of people we, saying that. Yeah, but we hold out uh you're you're basically saying that that you and I are nuanced, but we don't act nuanced though. I mean, you you even when you were talking about science before, basically what you were pointing to is is nuance is valuable. Fail, failing in life is valuable because it allows you to course correct. It's basically mm-hmm. just giving you uh, perspective, right? And I mean, I think it's, uh, but I think that most human beings we act as in absolutes. You and I, when we go into the doctor's office and they offer us a flu vaccination, you and I aren't operating in a world of nuance at that point. You and I aren't going like, well, let me pull up some medical journals and do a little research on this and figure out if <laughs> yeah. this is the right schedule vaccine. Sure. Sure. We're not operating that way. And we don't operate like, so we're saying we value nuance and yet we aren't acting nuanced. When I go in there and they say, Hey, you're up for your flu shot. I'm like, go ahead, stick it in my left arm, non-dominant <laughs> arm. Go ahead, get it yeah. done with. I'm not thinking about the future. And then the anti-vax people are doing the same exact thing. So we value nuance, but we act in absolutes. And the reason why we do that is because we only have so much brain power if everything was a decision throughout the day our lives would be chaos there are some people that ride motorcycles and because they ride motorcycles they check the intersection even if they have the green light yeah they check to the left they check to the right i don't do that because i'm living in another universe i'm in the safety of my car so i don't check the intersection it's just automatic for me if it's a green light i go and i'm not thinking but the problem is, though, is that I am creating a, a potential problem because I am increasing my risk that, you know, at one of these intersections, one of these days, I could get hit by a truck. Yeah. But that is not a worry in my mind because right. because I've got other things that are more pressing. So I act on uh, basically yeah. an autonomic behavior most of the time and most human beings do. It's only when we pause like we do, like we're doing right now and we're trying to think about the nuance do we start actually engaging in it. But I but I would say for the most part when you and I are out on just, uh, you know, just engaging in our regular everyday lives, we are just acting on autopilot and our nuance goes away and we act in absolute, you know, in absolute absolutes. 
that might be a little <laughs> redundant, but it's um, an absolute, absolute. It's like, you I, know. I and, love the example you brought up. So about a year, maybe a year and a half ago, I was at the intersection um, near my old house uh, off of Inglewood and like Redondo Beach Boulevard or Marine or something. And um, <clears throat> I was sitting at the light uh in the center lane, so there is a turn lane off to my uh, left, and uh, I'm going straight, and there's a um, another lane off to my right going straight. I'm about three cars back uh, from, from the front, um, and there's maybe five cars in the turn lane next to me, and um, we're all at a red light. Okay, um, the turn uh, lane goes green. The first car goes, the second car goes, and then there is a car next to me. The car next to me, the person is looking at their phone. The person behind them honks. I look up and over, see them on their phone. They drop it, uh, go through the green light. Then the person behind them goes through the green light. Um, And as that person, the person who honked, is going through the green light, I see uh, to the further left a car coming, not slowing down, and I go, this car is going to run the red light. They're going to hit that car. And in slow motion, I go, yep, they just ran through it, and they're about to hit them. Yep. And like in just slow motion, and then all of a sudden, they they hit, and like the slow motion goes away, and one car spins around, and... um, it was just like this crazy slow motion crash that I just watched the whole thing happen and, and just just caught it all of it before and watched the whole thing go down. And it was so bizarre. Um, and because of that experience, when I am at an intersection, unlike you, even though I'm not on yep. a motorcycle, I'm in the safety of my car. I look both ways, especially late at night, even though the accident didn't happen at night because I'm worried about drunk drivers. And so I think about these things just because of the experience in my life, not because of anything I philosophically thought myself through or to. And so I think really what this alludes to is that our experiences and the way our brain looks at experiences really dictates a lot of the way that we act. Philosophically, we can think ourselves into these nuances, but our experience is really what creates these absolutes. And now if we bring it back to the whole vaccination thing, most of us have been vaccinated and we're fine, okay? And so I think that that accounts for a lot of us just being like, yeah, go to the doctor and they're like, here's your shot. And you're like, great, put it in my arm. We're good to go. And you don't think twice about it. Um, but some of us uh, maybe have had experiences that aren't even necessarily accurate. Um, I brought this up probably a few episodes ago, but um, uh, human beings are extremely poor um, at, uh, at looking at causality. Um, I mean, we can do it. We're good at it. But um, I don't know if you remember me telling you the, or this or not, but there was a study done where they string a bunch of numbers on a computer um, and they said to the the people participating in the research, push the button when you figured out the sequence or the, the pattern. And when there was yeah. no pattern, people would press the button sooner than when there was an actual pattern, meaning that um, when there aren't any um, clear cause and effect, we just come up with it. We make it up in our head. Um, 
And so um, there are people who maybe have gotten this idea in their head and they, they see the vaccines or maybe actually something did happen. Again, what I want to say is I've never been there to see every single vaccine go into every single child in the way they behaved before and the way they behaved after. Um, and as I said last episode, I get parents who say, look, I am telling you this is what happened. He got the shot. He cried for eight hours, woke up the next day and never spoke again and starts waving his hands in front of his face. And they, they could be telling the truth. Um, something I, I did want to bring up before we switch gears here, though, is um, so as I was uh, um, listening to the podcast and going back through it, one of the things that I thought of, um, because we are in the midst of this whole COVID-19 pandemic, was um, the, the fact that uh, it's not a fact, but the idea that most of the um, people who are protesting the whole stay-at-home order and want to get back to work and all that type of stuff um, happen to be a lot of anti-vaxxers. I don't think it's all anti-vaxxers are um, out there protesting and and trying to get back. Um, But it's a lot of anti-vaxxers, which is interesting because a lot of these uh, anti-vaxxers, their message is, Look, um, vaccines are potentially dangerous. Um, yeah, I got vaccines and you got vaccines, but they can be harmful and they can hurt people. And, you're, and you and I are saying that happens like almost never. Uh, and and now we're in the midst of the COVID thing and they're saying, let's go back, let's go back. Uh, you know, people are, are getting sick and dying and they're saying that happens like almost never. And so we're both taking this cautious approach in, in one situation, but not in another. And both sides are somewhat hypocritical. It's like the anti-vaxxers could take their same approach to vaccinations and uh, where they're saying, look, we should just be cautious. Like you should not be giving all these vaccines to a child this young. And we could say, okay, so then you should also just be cautious with this pandemic and this disease. And we shouldn't be going out because you shouldn't want to be getting exposed to it. Even if the risk seems relatively low, likewise, you and I might be saying, dude, just stay at home, be cautious, flatten the curve. Like, you know, you don't know what's going to happen and maybe you won't, you know, get sick, but maybe you could catch it and someone else will get sick. And then on the other hand, when it comes to vaccines, like you said, we're like, yeah, give it to me, stick it in my arm. Almost nobody gets sick. And so there's this weird, um, uh, I think you described it as cognitive dissonance or there's this disconnect or hypocrisy where it's like, I'm upholding one point of view of caution when it comes to COVID-19, but not vaccinations at all. And I totally could be. Uh, And the community of vaccinators um, are are sort of doing the same thing. They're upholding caution um, when it comes to getting a vaccine, but not when it comes to like the, the, the flu pandemic or the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a, a lot of hypocrisy there and it goes on. I mean, obviously both sides, you just tend to hear more about the anti-vaccination movements and everything. Um, yeah, I think it's it's even there's even more cognitive dissonance when you look at some of these individuals when they say, uh, you know, a lot of these um, parents claim to be vaccine injured themselves. They're going to these protests and everything. And I think um, a lot of Wait, them the, the believe parents are saying that they have been injured by vaccines. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, I mean, just even adults and just in general that say, you know, I'm vaccine injured and they have uh, various autoimmune issues that they say resulted from their vaccinations. They say that they're compromised now forever because of these vaccinations. Well, how do right? they know? Like, how can you be 30 years old and be like, yeah, I remember 29 years ago when I got that that's shot? The, 
that's the tough part about it. But that's why we talked on other podcasts where, you know, there's some groups out there that'll say that McDonald's and fast food and the standard American diet is the evil of, uh, you know, the United States. And that needs to be dealt with. And other people say, no, it's, it's vaccinations. That's the reason that I feel the way that I do. And there might be a little bit of truth in, in all of it, and just depending one. So upon everyone's kind of just picking their evil to battle. Whatever. It's, yeah. Whatever, you know, their, their version of the devil is. And then they just, you know, but I think a lot of times when you get into that mode though, uh, you're not necessarily seeking a solution. You're just trying to kill the devil. Uh, so you never really end up fixing yourself. You just start yeah. getting in these parade lines with people and you shout a bunch, but not a whole lot ends up getting done. And with these, some of these individuals claiming to be vaccine injured, you know, I've heard some of them say like, Hey, the solution here is, is to, is to open up the economy because there's going to be a lot of harm that is going to be caused because the economy has been shut down, which, which there is, is some truth yeah. to that. Yeah, yeah. That's something that has to be considered. And so their thing is like, okay, well let's, uh, we're not going to, um, we're going to have compromised individuals, people with comorbidity issues, we'll have them stay home, you know, at risk risk groups while the rest of us go and work. And the individuals that are espousing this are simultaneously saying that they are vaccine injured, which makes them immune compromised and susceptible (laughs) to things like COVID. And yet they're out protesting. Yes. Interesting. And that's, well, it's, that's the cognitive dissonance. Like that is where the disconnect lies. Yeah. And to me, I don't get upset about it because it's, it just gets ridiculous. Cause it's like, wait, are you injured or now you're, you know, fighting for freedom? And like, I don't, you know, the, the ideology doesn't match up, but that's the problem is that they're not looking necessarily for solutions. They're just trying to attack the devil, whoever that devil may be. And every side has their own devil. But, you know, this all originated from us talking about diversity of ideas. And I think diversity yeah. of ideas, even ideas that we disagree with, um, are valuable because ideas need to be tried out and then tired out and then that way we can move on to better ideas and you may say that these ideas are a waste of time and they're taking up a bunch of time and energy from people and we're yelling about it and all that kind of stuff but uh, I find it's all interesting because a lot of it is two sides of the same coin. And when you were talking about diversity, I think you were talking about uh, we have too much diversity. We already have Republicans, Democrats, variations of all of those, you know, people of uh, in groups of all sorts and everything. But what I think what I was talking about was diversity uh, in terms of the individual, like can you read information that is outside of your current perspective without needing to cling to a box of Kleenex? Yeah. Are you upset by new information that is counter to the way that you currently think? And I think most Americans operate in that bubble. And I still operate in that bubble to an extent. When I see someone that says, I am vaccine injured and immune compromised, and yet they're outside protesting in the middle of a pandemic within, you know, uh, touching distance of other people. I immediately have like an emotional internal emotional response where I get irritated. But then that irritation just turns into this is just human beings being ridiculous. This is what we do, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's why these groups a lot of times will fizzle out. You know, they will go away on their own and we will. We'll put too much emphasis on these things because they do. They drive us nuts. We want everyone to to act in conformity. But, you know, imagine if we did that with art. 
art wouldn't be art if everyone just operated in a in a bubble of conformity. Right. It and wouldn't be it wouldn't be revelatory. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be revelatory. It'd be fucking boring. Look, I know, so, and I, I did have some thoughts throughout the week, too, where, like, people are like, oh, my God, you know, Governor Newsom, this and that, blah, blah, and we got to get rid of them, and, and this and that, and it's like, we live in a democracy, like, this is what, like... This is what was voted on. You can scream all you want, but like nothing. Well, that's what we happen. always do. And burn it down. But, but the beauty of it is, is there are people who think like you. Just go move with them. If you don't like it, leave. Yeah. Well, right? my thing is like you, you don't even have to leave. Like just you know, like I think we should be able to explain ourselves. I think most. I think each and every one of us can content connect on other issues aside from the issue that is contentious. So I can connect with someone on a, a million different points of connectivity and then disagree with them on one aspect of their philosophy. And yet it's easy at that point for me to discard that person as being this evil other rather than just listening to the person and realizing they have a different perspective. It's like when I listen to someone like Alex Jones, uh, who is the famous, you know, conspiracy theorist, like I lose my mind laughing. (laughs) Like it is so over the top, like space aliens and like, you know, and then, uh, abortions at pizza clinics and like, it is so over the top crazy and he is so into it so into it and i am totally not i'm just into the fact that he's into it i think it's fucking batshit crazy but it's interesting and i don't get bothered by those people at least i don't get bothered by them in the long run once i've thought about it you know these anti-vaxxers they're not trying to kill your children the people that are pro-vaccination they're not trying to kill your children there's just a a a difference of in view we need to balance the approach are there going to be more deaths from a particular disease than there are uh complications with getting the vaccination i think in a general sense we know that there was a lot of deaths in the past so uh you know exposing people to vaccinations with the the off chance that there's a one percent risk or whatever maybe that is better than the overall mortality rate of not vaccinating at all so there's a way to take a balanced approach on all this kind of stuff I but agree. it's just it's the human condition we 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 just think in absolutes that's the way like we if, operate if there was some acknowledgement from the opposite side that vaccines could potentially be somewhat damaging but that it's one percent and there's a, a, a trade-off and then and people are like, okay, well, you see my concern then. So shouldn't I be allowed to not vaccinate my child then and and not take that 1% risk since everybody else, you know, doesn't have measles, mumps, and rubella. He's not going to get it either. And it's like, to me, I think, well, why do you get that liberty then? If we all get that, then nobody's going to get vaccinated. And then we have measles, mumps, and rubella again. And then we're back up to a 25% child mortality death rate. So I don't, I don't know. Look, I'm just thinking out loud. Here's what we should do. Let's shift gears and talk about what we were scheduled to talk about today. Um, oh, yeah. We are going to talk about um, Trump and uh, his discussion. With, <laughs> we were in that into that by uh, forty minutes. I didn't realize yeah, so much for the fifteen minute timeline. <laughs> Um, that's all right. We'll go a little over, but, um, look, uh, we wanted to talk about, um, Trump and his, um, conversation deal he struck with, uh, Putin and, um, the Prince of Saudi Arabia to cut oil production. Um, Paul, this was your article that you found and topic you want to discuss. So go ahead and explain it a little bit. 
Well, I mean, you know, you just uh, driving around and everything, which I'm not doing a whole lot of, uh, I mean, working from home and all that. Most most of the driving I do is just to go hiking or go to the grocery store, that kind of stuff. But what I have noticed is that gas prices have uh, gotten considerably lower. I mean, they're in the, you know, uh, mid two dollar range. I went to fill up my car maybe three weeks ago and uh, I was at Costco. And I, my, my car stops pumping at like $18 or $19. You know, I just looked up and I, I didn't even glance. And so, um, I, I push the, uh, nozzle again and, uh, and it stops again and I keep doing it. I'm like, dude, what in the hell is going on with these pumps? <laughs> and then I look and it's like, oh, you've put eight gallons in and I knew I wasn't completely on empty. And I'm like, how much is gas? I'm the, I'm the type of person I never look. I just go out of habit. I'm like, in my head, yeah. gas is going to be the same no matter what. And if I'm by Costco, I'll get Costco gas. If not, I just get Shell because that's what my parents told me to do when I was a kid. They're like, Shell's good gas. And I'm like, all right. And so I always buy Shell. <clears throat> yeah. Um. So I don't know how much gas costs. I'm thinking in my head, it's going to be four bucks like it always is somewhere around there. And, and I just... Don't even worry about it because when I look, it pisses me off. And so uh, I was just shocked. It took me like a minute to figure out that gas was $2.25 at Costco or $2.20 and that my my car filled up and it only cost me $18 or $19. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was noticing uh, too was, uh, I mean, mine wasn't as dramatic as <laughs> I saw the prices it was pretty dr- falling over time. I know that was a really time. stupid story, but I was shocked. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that an example of white privilege? Like, yeah, I don't have to pay, t- I don't pay attention to the gas prices. It's just like gambling. At the end, I just look at the receipt and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Whereas most people like, you know, they kind of have to have an idea like how much is this really going to cost? Uh, no, I'm just messing around. But uh, uh, no, I, I notice the gas price is going down and that that makes sense. Supply and demand. Demand is down right yeah. now because uh, the coronavirus, you know, half of the population are staying home, according to Google Analytics, or more than half of the people are staying home. Um, residential activity, like we talked about before, is up. Driving's obviously down. So the prices are, uh, you know, in the mid $2 range, which is awesome because there was a time period, uh, you know, what, maybe six months to a year ago where gas was, you know, probably just under four bucks around there, right. three fifty, four dollars um, which is rather expensive. Uh, and just like you're saying, I mean, I have a, a, a Prius. It's typically, you know, gas prices are low. It costs me $20 to fill up. If gas prices are higher, you know, it could be 35, 40, depending. Right. Um, so, I mean, there is a difference there, but if you're driving a big vehicle, then it's a huge difference. But, um, then I came across a Reuters article where they were talking about, I guess, a price war that was going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And this just coincidentally happened to coincide with the COVID virus. So basically, Russia and OPEC have a pact. And uh, OPEC is, is OPEC? basically, it's, um, it's the oil producing uh, country consortium so something like that it, it's uh-huh. basically a group of the of oil producing countries the usa is not a part of it um it's uh a lot of middle eastern countries of we are not a part of it um 
at least as I read. And uh, Russia isn't a part of it, but they have a coalition that will go to some of these meetings. And I guess they do have some sort of a say, but they did have a pact with Saudi Arabia where they were supposed to keep their uh, production at a certain rate. And OPEC Russia stands ex- for Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Exporting countries. Okay, exporting countries. There we go. Um, and they and basically OPEC was formed, I think it was shortly after uh, World War II. Uh, we controlled a lot of. Was it 1960? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that was just to counter um, our oil supremacy. Uh, they didn't think that uh, they wanted to charge higher rates, and we were basically telling them no. So they got a coalition of countries together to band together right. to get themselves some leverage over the United States. So fast forward to today, they had a, a OPEC had a, a problem with Russia. Uh, Saudi Arabia has 80% of the known reserves uh, for the world's oil. So they are the player in the entire in the world, and they can produce oil cheaper per barrel than any other. Uh, producing country in the world so they have they can experience a very elastic uh, um, price range in terms of the prices that they're going to charge and the supplies and the the supply rate that they're going to supply the rest of the world with so russia raised their uh, production against the pact with saudi arabia saudi arabia gave them an opportunity to uh, to fall back into alignment with the pact. Russia didn't do that. Saudi Arabia, in turn, because they can produce uh, oil at, I think the rate is about half the cost of what it costs Russia to produce a, a barrel of oil. So it's huge. So Saudi Arabia started flooding the market with oil. Right. And it was just because they were in a battle with uh, Russia. But what uh, happens here in the United States is that it causes, or rather across the world, is that the overall oil prices begin to fall. And the reason why that creates a problem in the United States and the reason why Trump stepped in is because we rely on oil that is more expensive to produce than Saudi Arabia. We've uh, tapped a lot of our reserves or we've opened up new uh, national park areas where we can't drill anymore. So we are more heavily reliant on other forms of oil production like shale oil. And mm-hmm. shale oil is extremely um, cost sensitive or it, or it has an extreme cost to producing shale oil. It's not as simple shale as just extracting that's, it. That's uh, where they like scoop up sand with oil in it. Is exactly. Correct? Okay. Yeah. And, and it's, so it's more it and it's really yeah. expensive to process because you got to like exactly. rinse the sand and then separate the oil from whatever you... The chemicals are that you rinsed it with and exactly so that's where you see the the uh the reason why it costs so much to produce that rather than just you know sticking a pipe into the ground and just extracting oil that way the traditional method uh so um so we can only produce oil as long as oil is at a certain cost to the consumer right so if oil falls below a certain point it's no longer cost effective for us to extract that shale oil anymore. So then we have a bunch of infrastructure that's just sitting idle because it costs more to extract than they can actually sell it for. So the worry is, is that these are national oil companies and our uh, oil companies that are allies with the United States. Uh, they may end up going out of business and then we could experience what we experienced back in the 1970s with the oil crisis, I believe, under Jimmy Carter, where we uh, Saudi Arabia basically did the same exact thing. 
uh, we weren't uh, an oil producing nation like we once were. And because they took their oil away from us on the market, we didn't have enough to fill the void. So the worry is, is that Saudi Arabia keeps this going. Our companies go out of business and this creates a national security risk in the future, whereby let's say we need to go to war or we need to do something, yeah. but we're no longer have the infrastructure in place to produce our own oil a country like Saudi Arabia and OPEC in general can literally just cripple this country. So I want to play devil's advocate for a second. And this is, as I was reading the article, I had some <clears throat> immediate gut reactions where I go, you know, um, Trump bad and libertarianism good or, or um, liberalism good. Um, but um, so... So when I think of this, I go, okay, so here's Trump just bailing out the rich oil industries uh, again and, and giving a bunch of money to, you know, all the corporations who should have been prepared for this, um, while the little guy who's out of the job still is barely not getting anything. Oh, yeah. You know? I have friends yeah. who filed for unemployment over a month ago and still haven't seen anything. I filed over a month ago. I got, I got laid off on the, or furloughed on March 25th and I haven't seen a dime. Um, although they did send me a thing saying they paid me, I don't have any of the money and they didn't pay me any of the extra stuff according to them. They gave me the bare, the maximum of the old stuff, 450 a week instead of the 1050 a week, even though I make more than that typically. Anyways, look, I'm not complaining because I also got my job back and I've, I've got everything taken care of right now. So I'm not worried about it. I'm just saying, I go, oh, so they're getting, you know, all this help from, from Trump in this bailout, um, you know, sort of. Uh, and meanwhile, we're still getting screwed, the little guy. Um, so what's your reaction to that? Or what do you want to say to that? This is the, the tough part about the, the presidency. And in this type of case i almost think because in my mind in the short term you you are hurting the little guy because you're basically saying gas prices need to be higher so these oil companies can keep operating yeah so they can keep making money off of us and but what do i look like 20 years from now if our oil companies don't exist anymore and then all of a sudden saudi arabia says hey you know what i don't like what the united states is doing i know they don't have the infrastructure anymore to extract oil and even if they wanted to they couldn't do it for another 10 years you know to get back up and running to capacity so i'm gonna starve them then what do i look like as that future version of myself where nobody is getting gasoline yeah so is it is it better to pay the higher price in order to to think strategically in the long term and let me just expand because i think i left some uh some out of the story basically what trump was doing was doing what we would we had already been doing we provide and manufacture arms for saudi arabia uh-huh and that gives us leverage i don't think that they manufacture um arms and stuff themselves in a general sense i'm talking about you know right uh fighter jets like the the most elite of military technologies we put provide them with that and there is no one better on this earth than providing that technology than uh other than the united states like we are the best in that capacity so they rely on us heavily especially in an area where they're fighting a proxy war in yemen against iran uh you know there's a lot already going on on over there and it's it's a constant struggle for power and survival so they need those arms but we also need their oil 
And we need to ensure that we have companies here that can pick up the load and pick up the capacity if we, uh, you know, if something happens to Saudi Arabia or something happens in Russia where there's just, you know, a void and we need uh, oil now, basically. I mean, we also have troops there that are helping protect oil fields and ensure that Saudi Arabia continues to run smooth, correct? Yeah, I think we have, I think, I believe that was one of Trump's threats is that if... If you don't um, lower um, your production of oil to artificially increase the prices, then we're going to start withdrawing our our troops, um, and you are not going to be protected and and have that yeah. advantage. So um, I believe that was one of the things. Look, I I agree with your assessment of the the twenty years down the road. Um, you know, I I actually think that uh, what Trump did, and again, I'm just getting sort of back into politics and paying attention to this, really for the sake of the podcast and and talking to you. But it, it's like, okay, look, say we let. Um, the uh, oil companies fail and say we let capitalism naturally take its course. Um, We're now losing American jobs. So now there are still more little guys getting screwed. But then who's to say that gas isn't going to cost more in the future? So yes, we're keeping it artificially high now, but that might keep it naturally lower in the future because as you said, if all these companies go out, then there's not as much of a, a means of production here in the United States. And in 10 years or 20 years, I mean, not only could Saudi Arabia um, decide that they don't want to give us that anymore, they could decide they want to. They could just say, well, look, you're not going to get it from anywhere else. You got Russia or us. And we're saying uh, 300 bucks a barrel. How do you like that? Which probably translate to, I don't know, $10 uh, for a gallon of gas, um, which yeah. honestly, if I'm thinking about that in 10 or 20 years, sounds very reasonable. <laughs> uh, well, the way prices are going. Stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, um, but I, I think that what he's doing uh, really is going to be something um, that helps stabilize the economy and a stable economy is good for you and me and everybody right now. If you create a very unstable economy and you say, ah, oh, let it work itself out, this and that, um, you don't know what detriment or effect that is going to have on the economy. Yeah. Well, right now, fine, well, you can predict it and you say it's just the you know oil, but what about 10 years from now? Um, and yeah. so I agree. I, well, I think that what he was doing um, was a good thing in general for us. Yeah. And I, and my thing is, is that I think both you and I are both in the same boat that, you know, I, I don't like uh, President uh, Trump in particular. I would like to see someone else in there. But I think this is one of those in instances where it's like, you know, I think he did do the right thing. We do have leverage and we can't give them our, our future. And I think that's what we're seeing with um there was a COVID a and the coronavirus. The, there was a quote from the article that said, like, to Saudi Arabia, we are defending your industry while you're destroying ours. And I thought that was like a, a nice, powerful statement to kind of sum up what was happening during the, the price war. Sorry, continue. Yeah, and it's a, it's a matter of uh, strategic leverage and everything. Um, and we saw what happened when all of our healthcare manufacturing takes place in China. Imagine if we did have a very serious pandemic and let's say that in the future relations with China did get worse, but they became stronger as we became weaker, meaning they get more of our manufacturing. We have less of it here. 
and they're yeah. creating more intellectual technology to where we're no longer the leaders necessarily in intellectual technology. We'd be right. in a really tough spot. So let's say we had something that was um, like uh, Ebola, where people are just hemorrhaging, you know, and it's just awful. And well, what if China just says, you know what? We're not going to be there for you. We're going to yeah. let you as Americans just die out. You're going to, you know, you want to do the same for us. So we're going to, we're just going to let you suffer. I mean, sort of thing. We're, we're already seeing very minor effects of what that would look like because China has uh, slowed down and closed some of its operations in certain sectors, um, especially with manufacturing and production. When you go to the store and when you look for certain things, um, it's not there. It's empty. It's been empty. And I'm not talking about like toilet paper and antibacterial hand soap. I'm talking like, you know, I've been to Home Depot uh, a few times looking for certain plastic parts uh, and they don't have it because it comes from China and China was closed for however long it was closed for. And, um, yeah. you know, uh, Sarah works for Belkin International, which produces um, accessories uh, and chargers for the iPhone and um, for Samsung Galaxies and Pixel, Google Pixels, things like that. So it's a lot of uh, phone accessories and household items, wireless routers. Um, and I mean, they were at a stalemate with everything for a long time. It's like, okay, so our packaging production has been closed for a month. Um, truckers are starting to work again, but they, they can't pick it up from this location, so we can't finish this. And everything was so interdependent upon... 10 different manufacturers in China, one producing the box, one producing the cable, one producing the plastic that holds the cable, one producing um, the wire ties that hold it together or something like that. The one that takes care of all the transportation and coordination um, because you have one of them not working. Everybody's now waiting on this and none of our products that you might typically see on the stores or, or in the shelf um, are uh, are on the shelves because everything has slowed down and that that affects uh, American business and commerce um, you know to the point of of well what happens if that continues to go on can this American company who heavily relies upon China and their production sustain itself and and what will that look like again in a year or two years or five years um, these companies are going to be closing their doors because we don't have American companies uh, to be able to produce these things. And if, and if we do begin doing that, creating American companies to produce these types of things, say boxing and plastic packaging and the actual wires, definitely expect to pay triple, quadruple what you're paying now for those types of, of things and uh, yeah. for chargers and, and routers. You know, what's a good wireless router for your house right now? A hundred or 200 bucks for uh, a system? Start expecting to pay 500 to a thousand dollars for, um, you know, the the system yeah. that goes through your house where you have one one router and three little spots and that help amplify it. Start expecting to pay a thousand dollars instead of two or three hundred. And that's the way it was back in the day. I mean, uh, we paid uh, high prices, but we were the only ones that could manufacture this stuff. So we were able to, to manufacture it here, pay people well because they were, um, you know, uh, lucrative uh, jobs, or at least the outcome of the job was creating a car or something on an assembly line. We were the only ones doing it. So it was easier to uh, be the leader in manufacturing and be a leader in exporting. Yeah. Um, our goods and everything because other countries didn't have the capability of doing what we're doing. 
And other countries, you know, through the economic principle, the catch-up effect, they start catching up to us. They start forming middle class. Uh, their middle class works for less than uh, than we do. Some of the factories move overseas. And the problem with that in terms of a national security standpoint is that we do become very dependent on those countries. And if there is a problem or if there's a war or if there's famine or whatever, they're going to take care of their own first. And we may not have the capacity to produce what we need from them ourselves. Yeah. And I think from a national security standpoint, that does present a lot of problems. We've seen throughout history, like with the, I'm probably going to butcher the the pronunciation, but the Anasazi Native Americans, they were highly dependent upon uh, different um, other uh, Native American tribes, basically supplying them with what they needed to run their massive city. Uh And when some of these supply routes started to fail, the city almost immediately began to fail. I mean, the only way we're able to understand their population and their trade routes and to even know that they exist now is because pack rat middens, um, you know, those little bundles of sticks and feces and leftover food, all that kind of crap that rats Uh pack into their nests. Well, that can stay intact for 40,000 years so scientists have been able to see with some of these uh, some of these um, collapses of some of these civilizations that basically their trade routes dried up and these these big population centers these civilizations that were reliant on that just crumbled within an instant when some of these routes began to dry up and you look at this now play out on a uh, global scale with industrialization and it does make you just kind of put you at fear in the future of putting too much of your eggs into another country's basket, making you dependent. So we could be produce, producing all this military stuff, but I mean, if we can't just get basic medical necessities and food and that kind of right. stuff, we can't get oil. We're still dependent upon oil. Um, if we can't change in that regard, you know, we're always going to be beholden to these other countries, which is why I actually think as we get closer and closer to automation, that might be the great liberator. Imagine if you didn't have to, if capitalism didn't have to rely on uh, low wages and low uh, wage earning individuals from other countries. Imagine if it was just robotics. I mean, eventually it would get cheap enough, I would think, to where uh, you would see that on a mass scale. And, you know, wouldn't our economy just shift at that point? You know, it's like, oh, we don't have a bunch of uh, fans anymore. And so what's going to happen to all the fan manufacturers and technicians and all that? It's like, well, Carrier invented this thing called an air conditioning unit. And it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. So it opened up this whole other industry in correlating industries and it didn't disrupt anything. It was actually a good thing. And that might be better for our national security interests because, you know, I mean, if they're, if China is building robots for us using humans, eventually it gets to a point where robots start building robots. And then wouldn't it just make sense for us to have those robots here just yeah. producing more robots? Like, yeah. You know, and then that lessens the dependency. There will always be an issue with natural resources, but that's why, we, like with Saudi Arabia, there's no point in competing against Saudi Arabia because they can produce oil cheaper than we can, than anyone else can, and they have more of it than anyone else. So we can't win in that regard. How we win is figuring out other technologies that we can lead in. I mean, I think the electric car was produced before the advent of the uh, um, combustible engine, I'm pretty sure. I think the electric car was first. Um, 
and I, you know, I think we can do a lot of that now. We can get electrical technologies in place. Um, looking at uh, micro nuclear facilities and reactors, things that are just safer in general. Yeah. Um, but there's so much of a political divide attached to these things. Like if you're the left, you can't be for nuclear power. But I think, in a sense, there can be a safe way of doing it. I mean, they do it in France. Um, and well, I, 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 I really think we could. Make I progress. think federal regulation, like we're going to get into a completely different subject if we, we continue down this path, but um, uh, <clears throat> federal regulation needs to be much less than what it is. I mean, it's it's great to have somebody generally overseeing um, what happens in the United States, but, the, but each state is really supposed to be um, its own individual little experiment. And, An incubator, um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're supposed to kind of be able to do whatever the heck they they want and government has stepped in and tried to make us so um, uniformly the same with a lot of its rules with the Environmental um, Protection Agency, uh, Agency and things like that where it's like, look, I'm, I'm all for a, a cleaner um, and healthier environment, but like you know, you should be letting each individual state decide what they want to do based off of their size and how many people, maybe a state like California or New York, um, shouldn't be having very loose EPA, um, regulations because, you know, there were days where in the seventies people couldn't go outside because the smog was so bad or they'd have to wear gas masks. I mean, you know, people are complaining now about having to wear masks. Uh, okay. Back then, like you definitely had to, or else you'd be, uh, uh, breathing in carbon monoxide um, yeah. all day long, along with a bunch of other chemicals um, <clears throat> and, and carcinogens and things like that. Um, and so you just can't have that here because it's not healthy for people. But what about when you go up to somewhere like, I don't know, Wyoming? They don't have that many people. They're never going to have that problem. And so, you know, you could say, well, it's not fair for us to be doing it. And they, they don't have to. And again, it's like... If, if that's that big of a deal in your life that you have to pay a little bit more for a catalytic converter on your car or this or that, then go move there. If you don't, if you don't like it, like that's what's great about America is we have open borders. You can go wherever and kind of do whatever you want. But the thing that kind of sucks right now is we don't have as much diversity um, to really try and run these experiments. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm lying a little bit and I don't know a lot behind this. Maybe you do, but I heard like... Um, uh, recently, <clears throat> Denver, Colorado, or maybe Colorado in general, decriminalized all Schedule One drugs. Is that true? Um, I I, I, I heard this from somebody who lives there and, and is into that kind of stuff. So I would imagine it is true. Yeah, but it's like I, hey, no, I read something about that. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not there's a good experiment. See how it goes, and you're also in a place where there's already a large homeless people, uh, homeless population. Um, is that going to impact things positively or negatively? Um, you know, it's like you could say, mm-hmm. well, they legalized weed, and that was really bad. But it's like, but yeah, a lot of people moved there, and so you know, um, I don't know. I just like the idea that people get to try things and fail and we get to learn from it. But if you make us all the same, this kind of goes back to the beginning of the episode. Yeah. If, if every state has the same regulation, then you don't really get to try anything different and you don't get to learn from it. Um, and that was, you know, supposed to be kind of part of what was built in the United States is each state is its own entity and federal government cannot tell them what to do, but that's not really the case anymore. That's how it was. That's not how yeah, it is. Yeah. And they can, in- 
they can incentivize and, and do things like that. So, I mean, it's a dual federalistic system. Uh, so the states do have autonomy and everything yeah. and their own constitutions. Uh, but I think it's a matter it, – it's where you think the federal governments in the states should be placing their interests. And I think it, you're right. Like there, there's good and bad to the, to the argument, I guess you could say, because – I mean, what if a state was doing something? This is just a super simple example, but let, let's say that, um, and it wouldn't be actually constitutional today, so maybe it's just a bad example, but like, you know, we have a constitutional amendment that says, you know, they abolish slavery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what if, if it wasn't so, we just left it up to the state sort of thing, uh, and then you had a state that said, oh, we're pro-slavery and we're going to keep slavery the way it is, right. you know? I don't know that that would be an effective outcome. Uh, you know, I mean, because I mean, I think maybe that's a, a bad example. No, um, it's not. Because look, um, you could say that, and I could say, well, the the economy would even itself out. Like people would just stop um, buying from that state, and this and that, and eventually they would want to do it on their own free will. But then it's like, would they? Because there'd be a culture of states around them who are still sort of okay with that. Um, and and so you might still have it going on today where there's a small section within the United States of America that has its own state that still has slavery. And people are like, wow, that's yeah. pretty messed up. Um, but we still trade with them and we still go there and visit and yada, yada, yada. Um, or maybe we don't, but people who live near there do and it allows their economy to continue. So I think that is a good analogy because we probably, most all of us might look at that and say, yeah, I don't want that. So government does need to step in to some extent. Um, well, I think that's a bad example, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it more, uh, those are those are innate characteristics. Those aren't ideas. And I, I think that uh, the government does have a place to tell people like, hey, you can't, you, you can't own someone and you can't prevent someone from pursuing their version of happiness so long as they're not preventing you from pursuing your own version of happiness. So I think when it comes to innate characteristics, there is a place for the government to say, hey, listen. What do you mean innate characteristics? um, Well, I mean, like you can't change your, your skin color. So, so I'm, what I'm saying is like we're talking about an incubator on a state level. So I'm talking. So I used an example where I just I picked what I thought was an easy one, which is just race. Like we uh -huh. all recognize that slavery is bad, and that it was a good thing that we changed. And so I brought up the hypothetical that uh, we should, you know, what if a state just held out and said we're you know going to keep slavery, blah blah blah, right. and there wasn't the constitutional amendment. But those are innate traits. I think what we're talking about in terms of the federal government and the states doing their own things, it's like when it comes to drugs, uh, there is no right and wrong answer that's immediately available to anyone. There's no innate like this is the answer. Like we all know now that to think that someone is different or bad because of skin color is purely ignorant. Well. That's not true. Like, we don't all know that because people still do in a that. general sense. Absolutely, but in a general sense, most of us do, and most of us have, or at least recognize that it's wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but um, okay, I don't know. I thought I was with you on that thing um, earlier. I thought you were saying like, like let's take this for example, and if the government did that, like. 
like that wouldn't be good. This is why we need government to intervene. So I don't know. Maybe we're on the same page now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think we are. I, I think th- I just used a bad example. Well, what what I saw from that, and maybe I, I misunderstood it or hopped on it like too soon, was that we do need government to intervene at some level federally across all states because it wouldn't be good to have slavery in just one state and have them doing their own experiment. Um, But I know you said um, there are things that that might apply a little bit more to that aren't as innate like skin color. Look. um, Yeah, and because those aren't nuanced. Those are just isms. Like they can't be helped, you know. Right. You know, you're you're born the, the way that you are. Like there's just, there's nothing that you can help in that. So having laws that are passed in that regard, like I think it's easier for us to say that, you know, those types of laws shouldn't exist sort of thing. Like the constitution should be absolute in terms of people having freedoms and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think when it comes to the states and what we were talking about, I think actually a better example would be, let's say like a state decides they want to legalize drugs. Like instead of having it legalized across the entire nation, you do something like Colorado, you have an incubator system where you see whether or not something like that will work. And I think that is good. But the thing is, is that I get the feeling sometimes that states do what corporations do that aren't strategic in the long term, meaning they look at what is working now and they aren't necessarily thinking to the future. Whereas I think the federal government, I think can provide some balance in that respect because I think the federal government, first and foremost, they have to be focused on issues of national security. I'm not talking about like, you know, communism and all that kind of like crazy stuff and just uh, the facade of like threats and everything. I'm talking about like what we're, what's going on right now with COVID, having a plan, being able to spend uh in a way that causes a deficit in spending, uh, doing things that the average citizen couldn't do in a time of, of serious war or serious threat from another country where the lives of Americans on our continent are at risk. Uh, I think that the, the federal government has an interest in uniting the collective states to counter those types of threats. So I think in that sense, they should be thinking long term and strategically, whereas the states should be thinking uh, in type of in a kind of an incubative sort of a mentality. Like, let's figure out how we can make our state better than our neighboring state. And that'll incentivize a neighboring state to do better and vice versa sort of thing to where it's kind of like a perfect tug of war. But the federal government, I think, needs to be thinking almost like China does in terms of like 40 year plans. Right. you know, the states want low gas prices now and all these politicians want what's best now. But what's this going to look like in the future for our national security? Like, you know, 60 years ago, if we would have said, hey, these factories are starting to move over to China, um, are corporations putting too much of an emphasis on individual shareholders rather than, um, you know, each individual in the United States is being a shareholder, you know, of the nation itself? So. Like, um, I, th- I say we continue this discussion. We're at uh, an hour and 15 minutes. I say we table this discussion and pick it up right here um, uh, next episode. Um, and that'll give us some time to think because I've already got some ideas on that. Um, 
<clears throat> that I'd like to bring up, but I, my fear is, is that if we continue to talk about this, we're going to be going for two or three hours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I will make those notes, um, and we'll listen to this and, uh, uh, we'll, we'll pick it back up next time. Um, thank you guys for tuning in and listening, uh, to wayward weekly. This was episode six. And on the next episode, you're going to hear us continue this discussion and, um, we might, we definitely will, um, get into another discussion that we'll pick up the following episode. I think uh, you possibly talked about going over um, habits, routines, and behaviors, which um, there's two books. Um, there's quite a few books on it, but um, one's called The Power of Habit, um, and the other is called Atomic Habits, books that we've both read. Um, and this is uh, my area of specialty. So um, we might talk about that a little bit next time or um, the time after. Um, we'll see. But thank you guys for tuning in. Um, until next time, uh, stay safe out there.